good to see you out tonight, and if you're watching online, uh, welcome you as well. Uh, there's just something, though, about gathering together in the house of the Lord and, and, and just feeling His presence and be able to, being able to worship Him um, want, together as a, as a family. Uh, tonight, we're, we're, thank you, we're looking at probably the last part of this section of this study. Um, and you'll see as we go into uh, subsequent weeks that we'll be talking about different subjects. We'll be talking about forgeries. We'll be talking about the forgers themselves. We'll be talking about things like the virgin birth and, and just the objections that have been raised throughout history, but, but especially in this modern era uh, to try to discredit the Bible. So this is really the last week where we're going to be talking a lot about how the Bible was put together. Next week and, and in subsequent weeks, we're going to be talking about individual issues that has to do with uh, how we know things didn't creep in or how we know um, or why we know that the, the books that are not in there shouldn't be in there. But tonight what we're going to be talking about is uh, modern conspiracy theories uh, that, that have sprung up. I remember being in line waiting for donuts uh, before church and I was there to pick up a donut order and I heard somebody talking about the Da Vinci Code and they're talking about it like this was historically accurate. Um, books like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the Da Vinci Code assert that the story of the real Jesus has been purposefully covered up by the church. And the theory is that during the time of Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor of Rome, and the early creeds, and when new versions of the Bible were commissioned, and when the church began to experience political power during the 4th century, that was when Jesus was rendered divine. That, that all, everything got kind of changed. And before then, he was, you know, like just another great religious leader. And this was his story. But all of a sudden, these people came in and they changed the story to make Jesus who we see today. Um, now, I talked several weeks ago about the persecution of Diocletian. And Diocletian was the emperor right before Constantine. And there was a great persecution against the church and most of the, the known copies of, of manuscripts in Rome, because they were banned, were, were destroyed. Now, when the church began to experience political power and Constantine came to power, they made quite a few new manuscripts. And that part of it is true. Now, what they, what they don't tell you and what they want you to believe is that the manuscripts in Rome somehow existed in a bubble. They didn't. There were manuscripts that were in other parts of the world. So if you were in Rome and you were to make this manuscript that was radically different and told a different gospel and had a story of a Jesus that was suddenly divine when the other manuscripts weren't, there would be a huge contrast and there would be a huge contradiction. We don't see that. That didn't happen. So we can know this. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing is um, 60 Minutes, Discovery Channel, Time Magazine and the BBC all looked at the claims made in the Da Vinci Code and Holy Blood, Holy Grail and determined, and these are secular sources, that they're either not credible or not verifiable or both. Now the problem is that most biblical scholars pay no attention to that stuff, right? So the Da Vinci Code comes out. It's not like biblical scholars in, in you know, religious studies departments are running out to get the newest Dan Brown book. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a pop culture fad. So they ignore it. But the problem is that the people in the church have to deal with it. And so like me being in line at that, at that uh, donut store, I'm listening to these people talk about how the Bible was corrupted and how the Bible was changed because they read a fictional novel or a speculative work and came to that conclusion. 
So as we've talked about, most variants in different manuscripts involve spelling differences and nonsense reading. And they're the small and the smallest category, about 1%, involve variants which are both meaningful and significant. But even in that category, very little to nothing involves that of a, of a theological nature. I'll give you an example. In one manuscript, um, it, in the early chapters of Mark, it, it says Jesus was angry. And in another manuscript, it said Jesus had compassion. Now, that's significant. That's a significant difference between the two. But it doesn't affect our doctrine. It doesn't introduce anything no, new. We know Jesus, for example, got angry and turned over tables. So it doesn't introduce anything no, new to the, to the story of Jesus. We know Jesus had compassion on the crowds from other places. So if you have two manuscripts, and that, if, if, by the way, if those were the only two, you might have a problem, but we have a lot of other you know, manuscripts to compare them to. But if those were the only two, and you had that significant variant, then you might not ever really know what the author meant. But what I want to talk about tonight is something, like, is something called conjectural emendation. So you can use this and sound really smart. Like when you're talking to somebody and if you use big words, people assume they know what you're talking about, so they stop talking about Dan Brown. Um, but but it's, it's, not, it's not that, comp I mean, conjecture is, is what it means. It means, is there anything in the manuscripts where we have to guess at what they originally said? Like, for example, let's say we didn't have any existing copies, but a couple of old copies and degraded copies of the Gettysburg Address. All right. And so it said four score and, and that part had a wormhole in it ago, right? Now, it would be pretty easy to figure out what, because by the rest of it, he's talking about the birth of the nation. So you could know, even if you had to quote unquote guess, fill in the blank, you would know what that means because we know when the country was founded, right? And, said, and so at the end where, where there's, maybe there's another blank and it said, you know, that all blank are created equal. Well, you might look at that and say, well, that could either mean people or men. But knowing that at that time, when all were in view, the word men was used. And so even though you had to guess at something like that, you would be able to guess pretty confidently, even if you didn't have any existing copies that had the whole text. Uh, but the truth is, we don't have to guess. There is not any place, and the vast majority of scholars agree about this, because of the vast wealth of manuscripts, papyri, lectionaries, quotes from early church fathers, and fragments of manuscripts, we have no passages that are missing or that are only supported by one or two sources. Why don't you think about that? Because there are entire works from authors that came after the time of the Bible where we have no idea what they are. We have, we have many words. You know what, one of the, the fascinating things that I, that I see every now and then, because uh, Ruth and I will watch old movies, and we were watching, oh, what was it? Uh, it was about Shangri-La, starred Jane Wyman, uh, the, the Lost Horizon, that was it. And I think it was made in 1938, 1939. And much of it was lost. And so at certain parts, they still had the soundtrack, but they would have to put in a, a picture, right? They would have to put in a picture of that scene or freeze it. 
uh, the movie Metropolis. I, I, uh, that's probably the first science fiction movie ever made, made in the 1920s, silent film. And they thought for many, many years that much of that film had been lost because it had been edited down, it had been shortened. Then they found an old print somewhere in South America, very degraded. But it's interesting when you watch the film now that much of it is sharp, cleared, and restored, and much of it looks like, you know, like the old days when you're on a black and white TV and you're trying to get, you know, the static and, and somebody's grabbing the antenna and you're like, okay, don't move, <laughs> right there. Um, it, it looks like that. And this is stuff a hundred years old or less, right? Why do we have so many copies of manuscripts, papyri, etc.? It's because they knew how important that was. Now, film critics will look and say, oh, that's a travesty. How could you cut that? How could you throw that away? Didn't you realize how important that movie was going to be down the road? Well, no, they didn't. But the writers of Scripture and the early scribes knew what they were cop and and they were loath to throw anything away because they knew it, this is God's word, so they weren't going to crumple it up and just throw it in the trash, right? So it, it's like if you you know have a flag outside, um, even if you're not particularly respectful yourself, you're not going to be outside like you know let the flag all over the ground and you know because somebody else is going to get really really offended. Well. Think how much more we're talking about the Word of God and these scribes who dedicated their lives to copying it felt about the importance of it. So we have, 2,000 years later, zero passages where there is only one or two sources supporting it. So that's how much confidence we can have in the Scriptures. Now, when critics accuse the church of changing documents, they must be accusing the church of deliberate deception. They have to be saying, and that's why we talked about that before, how ridiculous that is. And we're going to deal with that shortly. But I want to get on to the next question. But we've talked about how ridiculous that is to suppose that just because they had the power to change manuscripts in Rome, they had the power to change them in Africa. Or they had the power to change them in other parts of Europe. They simply didn't have the power to control them. And once that persecution... See, in, in a confined area... Right, um, We know in the book of Acts that um, Nero kicked all the Jews out of, out of Rome for a period of time. So in a confined area, you can kind of close everything off, round it up, go house to house. And you can, you know, kind of like we saw Herod with the, with the babies at the birth of Jesus. And you could probably, and you'd know who the, the Christians were, just like Hitler knew who the Jews were and, and their neighbors did and their neighbors identified them. So I'm sure in the persecution of Diocletian, neighbors were turning on neighbors and, and pointing them out, this person's a Christian, go search their house. And you could probably rid Rome of most of the manuscripts. Even though people would try to hide them, you could probably get rid of them. You know what you couldn't do? You couldn't keep that contained. And as soon as the word got out across the Roman Empire that Diocletian is trying to get rid of all the manuscripts uh, that, that, that tell the story of Jesus, well, guess what would happen in churches on the fringes of the empire? They'd hide them. They'd hide them good. The Jews did this with the religious artifacts. And, you know, a, a country would come in and, and invade Jerusalem. The, the priests got really good. And that's why we, th we see stories about, uh, you know, where is the Ark of the Covenant and could it be found? Because they don't assume... That the priests would have left, especially if you're under siege for months and months, as the Jews were. 
if you're under siege, they don't assume that the priests would just leave the Ark of the Covenant sitting <laughs> to be found as soon as the army comes in. They would have used that time to dig tunnels. We know the Egyptians did that to try to hide things when, when they would build pyramids. So this is not something that's un, uncommon. So when you assert deliberate deception, you have to not only assert that they, the church purposefully changed all the manuscripts, but that they also somehow got to all the other churches, erased all the lectionaries, all the, all the fragments, all the sermon notes, all the letters that the second generation church fathers had sent and changed them to their liking. All right, so I want to talk about two groups, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just using them as, as an illustration of, of the two groups that make the claim that the early manuscripts are corrupted. We talked about this a little last week, and that is the ultra-liberal and the King James only make the claim. I'm not putting words in their mouth, but they make the claim that early manuscripts were corrupted and the Textus Receptus uh, on the King James only part is the only one that can be trusted. Liberals such as Bart Ehrman try to harp on passages that are meaningful and viable as evidence that scribes change the Bible to suit their own doctrine. But actually, these seem to support the difficulty ancient scribes had dealing with that doctrine, evidence that it was not a later edition. Um, Daniel and I were talking this morning because somebody had, had emailed the church asking a question about a verse in a modern translation that was, quote-unquote, missing. It's just, it wasn't in the modern translation. Now, one of the reasons for that, it's not missing from the Bible. It's missing from the King James Version of the Bible. So this is a distinction we have to make. I, I, like I said, I love the King James. I use it. I'm not picking on it. I think it's a great translation. Not, not trying to say anything bad about it. But it is based on later manuscripts than most of the modern translations. And so if something is missing, and I think in this, in this particular case it was where Jesus said this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. And they asked, did Jesus say that? Well, that's an interesting question. And here's, here, here would be my answer. Yes, he almost certainly said something along those lines. But why would it be not in, let's say, Luke, and it would be in Matthew and Mark? Well, here's why. Ancient scribes as they're copying, as we do. So let's say you're, you're telling that story and you've already copied Matthew and you've copied Mark, right? And now you're copying Luke. So you've already gone through the story twice. And in Matthew and Mark, it writes, Jesus said, this time can only, go, well, in the oldest manuscripts, it said only by prayer. So in Matthew and Mark, it said, this type can only come out by prayer. So now you're in Luke and you're writing it down. Guess what the tendency would be as you're writing it? It would just be your memory, you know, because that verse would just, you'd be telling the story. There are minor differences. And so what happens is, again, does that change anything? No, no, certainly not. If, if something is recorded in one gospel, John makes it very clear, for example, that he's recording things that the other manuscripts didn't. Doesn't make it wrong. He just said, you know what? We, basically, we have three books that tell the story in a very similar way. I'm, he, he says, I'm writing a different for different reasons. And he writes at the end and he says, I'm writing this basically to strengthen your faith. And so he deals with teachings of Jesus and he deals with his own personal memories that really deal with faith in, in Christ and who he was. So what you see in John is a lot of analogies. analogies. In John, he's the gate. He is the good shepherd. He is the door. 
He is the vine. So you see a lot of analogies in John that we don't see elsewhere. doesn't mean he didn't say it because it's only in one manuscript. It doesn't mean he didn't say it because it's not in Matthew. It just means that scribes are human beings. And as they would tell the story, sometimes, as, as, uh, you know, you remember the old game of telephone. And so one century goes to another and goes to another. So sometimes in the later manuscripts, you would have a scribe who would write it down out of memory. Now, in um, Mark 24, 36, a lot of manuscripts record Jesus as, as speaking of what we call prophetic ignorance. Um, where he says, uh, no one knows the day or the hour, not, even, not the angels in heaven, not the son, and not even the father. Now, scribes really struggled with that. They really struggled. Some of them did, not all of them, but some of them did because it seems to be speaking of a theological issue that, that to be honest with you, theologians to this day struggle with. How much uh, was, if Jesus was completely divine, and we talk about him being fully God and fully man, how could he not know uh, when, when his return would be? And so they struggled with these questions, and we struggle with them today. Right? We know from the overwhelming uh, preponderance of Scripture that Jesus made claims to divinity. If you've seen the, me, you've seen the Father. Jesus received worship. Angels said, don't you dare worship me. Jesus received, you know, from the time he was about two years old, he received worship. The Magi came and they worshipped him. When he calmed the storm, this, the Bible says his disciples worshipped him. When Thomas put his hands in his wrists, it says he fell down and worshipped him and said, my Lord and my God. So, so we know this is not something like that we just have one or two verses that claim that Jesus was divine. But they struggled with that. And so we see on occasion in certain manuscripts, scribes leaving that out, nor the son. Um, but the wording, for example, in, in Matthew 24, 36, might be in dispute. But in Mark 13, 32, where it clearly says the same thing, that's not in dispute. No, there's no scholars anywhere that think that Mark 13 is not accurate. We know that, hey, this is absolutely, we can have absolute confidence in this. Almost every manuscript agrees. Um, and then even in the end of Matthew 24, 36, even where a scribe, for example, might remove nor the son, at the end of Matthew 24, 36, it still says, but the father alone. So even if a scribe struggled and took out uh, that, that phrase in, a, in, a, in something he was copying down, um, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, but only the Father. Um, even though he doesn't say, nor the Son, at the end he does say, only the Father. So these kind of examples support the early church's idea of both the humanity and deity of Jesus. I'll give you another um, theological term. You can sound smart. The hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. You might want to write that down. What that refers to is the joining of humanity and divinity. It's what theologians use to explain the incarnation. Jesus, they said, was the hypostatic union of God and humanity. And interestingly, I was talking with Aaron yesterday and I said, a lot of us, we look at the phrase son of God and think that's a claim to divinity. It was actually the phrase son of man that set off the Pharisees. Because many people were referred to as sons of God, right? Even we see that in the, um, in the Old Testament where it says the fourth man in the fire and he looked like a son of God. 
and we see the Roman soldier at the foot of Jesus at the crucifixion. Truly, this man was the son of, a son of God. Okay, so that, that phrase simply meant that it was a human being who had a lot of attributes of the divine. Very compassionate, very wise, you know, powerful, whatever. But the phrase son of man, that was a, a distinctly Jewish phrase that referred to who we would call Emmanuel, God with us. So when you see Jesus saying, you will see the son of man coming, that set the Pharisees off. Because he was claiming to be the one Daniel said would come, who would be divine. In other words, he will be God born of human beings, the son of man. And that Jewish phrase meant God born of a human being, the son of man. So again, man not being a you know, biological male, meaning son, a human being. He was a son of mankind. And so the, the Pharisees would hear that when Jesus said... You, remember when Jesus is standing before them and they said, Are you the Christ? Confess. And he says, You have said so. In other words, your actions are proving that I am. You're fulfilling prophecy right now. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And they lost it. Because he was claiming in that phrase to be... The divine son. And that's why the next thing they say is, you have heard the blasphemy yourself. You've heard, we asked you a direct question, and you answered two ways. You're fulfilling prophecy. You're saying so yourself. And secondly, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And that, and that, was, not, that was not an ambiguous answer to them. That was, I, you're fulfilling prophecy, and I am the one that Daniel spoke of. ...who was going to come and be Emmanuel. And, and again, when you look at it in Isaiah... ...and you see that passage about the virgin will be with child... ...it doesn't say he will be named Emmanuel. He will be called Emmanuel. And that's a key distinction because when the angel comes to Mary... ...he tells her what to name the child. He says, you will name him Salvation, Jesus, Yeshua. But Isaiah says he will be called... Son of God, right? He will be called God with us. And so that is what, again, when we look at these, these prophecies, and Matthew deals with those a lot, uh, we have to look at them through a Jewish mindset. A lot of times we, we don't really get the significance when we're looking at them. Now, there is very little argument anymore that the earliest manuscripts didn't contain these omitted verses. So now what, what critics on both sides, on the far left and the far right, say is that especially the far right would say uh, these were either advanced uh, revelation if you're on the King James only side or if you are, are, are a very liberal scholar you would say they were added <laughs> revelation. Uh, but each of these doctrinal points are found in the modern translations. And it's interesting I, I heard a story of somebody who was he was talking with somebody who was King James only and he was, they were arguing about the modern translations. And so the person who was reading a modern translation said, well, let me make sure of something. Do you believe in the Trinity? Oh, the other guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. King James only guy, yeah. Uh, do you believe in the virgin birth? Yeah, absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins? Absolutely. Do you believe he's coming back again? Oh, 
He said, well, that's good. Because I was worried for a minute because I learned all that from my modern translation of the Bible. <laughs> right? So the, we've talked about this before. Clearly, God did not protect the word. In other words, like I noticed that the signs out here on the table kept getting bent. They kept getting torn. So finally, I just laminated them. Right? I just laminated the signs and put them up. Now, that would have been really wonderful if the Lord delivered the scriptures to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Pauline epistles. The Holy Spirit gave them, inspired them, and then immediately told them, now laminate these puppies, <laughs> right? <laughs> Put them in a binder so we have perfect copies for us. I mean, we would love that. The problem is that sometimes we ask God to do things that would negate faith. So if God injected himself in the process so that none of the original manuscripts deteriorated, that would prove the existence of God, wouldn't it? If every one of the Pauline epistles, all the gospels, the book of Revelation, every other work, every other manuscript from ancient time deteriorates, but the Bible doesn't, never did. Wouldn't that negate faith? And sometimes that's what we want God to do. What God didn't do clearly was prevent human, being from, human beings from injecting error. And like we talked about the other week, you, watch, you read the New World Translation, which is Jehovah Witness Translation, terrible. They just basically took a Bible and then you know, changed the parts they didn't like. Only one person in that whole committee of the New World Translation Committee, only one of them had a, even a rudimentary knowledge of the Greek. This was not a bunch of scholars getting together and putting together the best academic work based on the best resources we have and the, most, the, you know, the best manuscripts that we have. These were people with an agenda. Now, again, God could have struck them down, right? They could have all, every one of them, bolt of lightning. But wouldn't that do the same thing? Wouldn't that prove the existence of God? Every time somebody tried to monkey with it, that God shoots a bolt of lightning and, you know, shoots them dead. Um, so what did the Lord do? What the Lord did was he made sure that we have so many manuscripts. And we talked about this in previous weeks, if you were here. That we have so many manuscripts, sermon notes from early church fathers that they would write down the passages that they were preaching on. So every Sunday I have a piece of paper and it's got this passage and this passage and this passage. We have tens of thousands of those. Papyri, lectionaries, which are basically devotionals. If you read a devotional, what does it have? It has scripture verses. So all of those we can use to make sure that the versions that we're putting together, the translations we're putting together, especially if we're, we're going into a new country and we're coming, coming up with a, a, a new translation in a new language, all of those resources can be used to make sure that we have a very, very accurate copy of the scriptures. So here's a question. What theological truths are at stake, what theological truths are at stake in places where there is disagreements between manuscripts? The answer, none. None. In all those places we've talked about, and again, this is an exercise in faith, but, but to me, this speaks loudly of God's preserving his word. Because yes, you have scribes that, that made mistakes. And most of them, like we talked about in the first lesson, most of them were spelling errors. Most of them were nonsensical. Some of them were dropping them. As it got later and later, 
You had scribes that would add things to, their, to, the, to the scripture to clarify, especially as things were translated. But in all of that, the consensus among even modern New Testament scholars is that no doctrine or teaching contained in the New Testament is jeopardized by these variants. I find that amazing. That the, and to me, that speaks of how that speaks of the preservation of the word of God. We don't argue when we talk about God's preserving his word, we don't argue for perfect grammatical protection. What we say is God has protected the sufficiency of his word. Now, this is interesting, and I know sometimes this sounds a little bit, you know, strange to our ears. But the Bible says that there's going to come a day when nobody is going to teach his brother or sister the word of God. It says that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And there is going to come, think about how much of the New Testament deals with dealing with our sin. Right? We're, this is a sad chapter in the history of eternity. We are, are in smack dab in the middle of this one little chapter where everything for eternity as far back as you can go ran perfectly in alignment with the will of God. Remember what Jesus tells us to pray when they asked him to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for a return to perfect alignment with your will. That's what Jesus right off the bat tells us to pray. Pray that we would return to perfect alignment with the will of God. Just like it is in heaven. And so from time immemorial, as far back as you could see, everything operated perfectly in the will of God. After Jesus returns, sets up his throne, we have a thousand year reign. We see Satan loosed for a short period of time. He's thrown into hell. And from that point on, we see humanity returning to perfect alignment with the will of God. We happen to have the misfortune of living in the little sliver here where we don't walk in perfect alignment with the will of God. And so we have to step back and say, okay, why was the word given? The word of God was given to us, God's people, as a manual, so to speak, of how we can best align, deal with the issues of sin, deal with our own brokenness, deal with our lack of understanding, but it is a, a temporary thing. Remember what Jesus said. Not one jot or tittle will be removed from the word of God until what? Until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. There will come a point in time, I imagine 10,000 years from now, it would probably sound really weird to read Romans. I mean, I'm sure we'll look back and be grateful that God gave us the gift of his word. But we'll also be living in a time where we, we just know the will of God. We're not tempted anymore. We're not in physical bodies that can be tempted. So reading Romans would be, oh, I guess it's interesting history. But it's not going to be terribly practical when we're living in that age. We absolutely need the word of God right now. It's, it's comp one of the things that I'm seeing in this generation, and it scares me, honestly. 
is a denigration of the significance and the authority of the word of God over our lives. If I feel bad about something, if I feel shamed about something, if I feel guilty about something, this can't be from God. God wants me happy. Can anybody find that passage? Because I'd like to find it. I'd, I'd, Job would have loved to find it. Moses would have loved to have found it. God wants me happy. Jeremiah would have been thrilled to have one verse. God wants me happy. It doesn't say that in scripture. God wants us holy. God wants us transformed. God wants us made ready. So, I mean, I get excited to think because Jesus saw those options before us. Jesus saw those possibilities. He looked out on the possibility that was, that was before us without him and saw us in torment forever. I saw a story of a, of a, of a young child that was killed by one of those wood chippers. His dad took his eye off him for a second and he died. Can you imagine the torment that father feels? If only I had, if I just held his hand, if only, that's what hell is. The Bible doesn't say that these people being tortured, it says in torment. God isn't rubbing his hands together looking to torture people in hell. But there is eternal torment. And Jesus saw that. The other possibility is the glorious one. That made ready and made transformed. That, I, that in my spirit, I, I just have come to the point where I hate sin. And I hate who I am apart from Jesus Christ. And I reject it. And I'm just so longing to exist in a physical existence where all of that it comes naturally. Where this flesh doesn't want to sin. And my mind doesn't think terrible thoughts. And I'm not walking around depressed and disillusioned and discouraged. But I'm joyful. I'm at peace. I'm in perfect union with the Lord. And, and so in my spirit, I'm pressing on. And, pre and that's what Paul said. Not that I've already been made perfect, but this I do. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So constantly I'm studying, I'm praying, I'm worshiping. So that in my spirit, man, but Paul said the, el the old man, the, the flesh, is wearing away. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. And so we're getting renewed, right? And one day I'll open my eyes in heaven and I'll have a new glorified physical body. Not only can I not get sick, not only can I not die, not only am I not infirm, not only am I, you know, my joints don't hurt and everything else, but now I don't want sin. Now I don't desire anything but the will of God. And now I am perfectly in tune with what God's will is. And I fall into the arms of Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So God gave us his word and he preserved his word. I don't think he's concerned, guys, with spelling errors. With whether John's name is spelled with one or two N's. Right? That, that wasn't what he was concerned with. What God protected was the sufficiency of his word. So that whether I'm in the 2nd century, the 5th century, the 18th century, or the 21st century, I can read his word and find the path to salvation and the path to holiness. All right, so, so here, let's, let's move on because we, we're, we're up against the clock. Is there evidence for the divinity of Christ prior to Constantine? Papyrus 46, dated 200 AD, contains both Hebrews 1.8 and 9.5, and or and, and should say Romans 9.5. About the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. 
Romans 9.5, theirs are the patriarchs, the Jews, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. What's, what's amazing to me is that even though, you know, people will say all the time, well, these, these manuscripts were manipulated and that's how Jesus became divine and over time it happened. By the fourth century, when you're talking about the, the council at, at, at Constantinople, the church was in agreement about the Trinity. They were in agreement about the divinity of Christ. Papyrus 66, dated around 1775, contains John 1, 1 and John 20, 28. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jehovah Witnesses try to change that, but if you look in the Greek, yes, it's written slightly different. Just like if you were writing something and you underlined it and you put it in bold type and then you put a yellow highlighter over it. That's what John does in John 1.1. If you study that in the Greek, the word was with God and the word was God. Bold, highlighted. That's, he's emphasizing it. He's not, he's not weaseling it out like the word was with God and the word was a God. That's what they try to say. John 20, 28, Thomas falls before him and says, My Lord and my God. Papyrus 75, dated around 225 AD, also contains John 1, 1. So did the early church manipulate the canon? Here's the problems with that. The first canon list that we're aware of was from a docetist Gnostic named Marcion. Now, if, you, if anybody reads Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman doesn't believe that he was agnostic, but just that he was a docetist. Again, another fancy word. Really means... He did not believe Jesus actually came in the flesh. Docetists believe that it was basically an impersonation of the flesh because the flesh is so corrupt that there's no way God could have come in the flesh because all flesh is, you know, the material is corrupt, only the spiritual is holy. And so Marcion tore out, so to speak, Matthew, Mark, and John, and that he heavily edited parts of Paul's writings and Luke's gospel. You know what he didn't do? Even, even a heretic like that? He didn't include books that would have resonated with his own beliefs like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, or the Acts of Peter. You know why? He knows the early church wouldn't have accepted them. He knows they would have been rejected. They're so radically different. I talked with a woman this week who's coming out of the LDS church and she said, I can't even bring myself to read the Book of Mormon. Anybody who knows the scriptures and tries to read something that is just counterfeit. Your spirit bears witness. This is not the word of God. And I've had that said to me over and over by people who've come out of that, that there's just something, it's just not right. It's just incorrect. Had a guy that last week trying to challenge me on that, and, and I asked him the question, how many times do you have to kill somebody to be a murderer? Well, once. How many times do you have to commit adultery to be an adulterer? Once. So how many times do you have to prophesy falsely to be a false prophet? Joseph Smith never got anything right. He hasn't had a prophecy come true yet. And many of his prophecies have been proven scientifically, historically, demonstrably false. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm simply saying, why has the Book of Mormon changed more in 150 years than the Bible has in 2000? If God is preserving it, if this is the restorative text, then why is God preserving one book and not the other? These are just legitimate questions. Again, 
I don't like, I'm not, I don't like to beat up on anybody. I don't like to pick on anybody. I don't like to make people feel small. But the truth is, this is life and death we're talking about. This is eternity we're talking about. And facts don't care about your feelings. I, I'm just telling you to be honest. Facts don't care about your feelings. And so when we're adopting in this age and we're adopting in this generation the idea that if it hurts my feelings, right? Daniel and I were talking about this today. A couple of generations ago, very few people moved from church to church. But if you did, you would, whether you thought the guy was a snake and a jerk, you'd still sit down with the pastor and tell him why. Because you were concerned about having God's blessings as you move forward. You wanted to do things the right way to make sure that, that you know what, I'm going to do things as best as I can so that moving forward, God can still bless me. Now we have such a diminished view of the holiness and authority of God. You know, I'm just going to do my way. I'm just going to go where I feel like, you know, I like the message. I got bad news from you. Eventually, the new pastor is going to preach something you don't like. There's only but so many churches. You know what, that's the bad. When I was ministering in New England, there literally were towns of 15, 20,000, one evangelical church. You know what they did? They figured it out and worked it out because they just didn't have 10,000 options. I can drive 40 minutes, 50 minutes, 60 minutes to church every week or I can have an you know, comfortable conversation and, and try to fix this relationship. By the way, like Jesus told us to, if you have aught with your brother, you go to your brother and you try to work it out. And if that doesn't work, you bring two people from the church that are respected. James said, you who are spiritual should help to restore you bring a couple of people, two or three people that are respected, and if that doesn't work, you finally you bring it under the authority of the church. And you say, we, look, we want the verdict of the church. doesn't mean you show up at church one night and you just puke out all your problems, but it means when bring it to the church means you bring it under the authority. What, and Jesus said, if they still don't submit to that, you've done all you can do. You've done all you can do. Most of us, though, we're just, we, in this day and age, we just have such a diminished view of the, of the authority of Scripture over our lives. That if I don't like it or it makes me feel bad, I'm going to move on. And, I, and as a pastor, it scares me because let me tell you what, I love my children. Man, I, my, you're, it's, if you're a parent, you understand this. Like your children, you're preparing them for life. But as a parent, they are your life, right? <laughs> so, so usually it's, it's like when my son just had his first baby and I said, now you know. Now you understand, Right? You understand that kind of immediate love, right? You understand that kind of, I will do anything to, to protect you. I will support you. I will do all that I can. I will pray for you. And so as a pastor, Paul said, you have many uh, that, 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 are, that are your teachers, but you have few fathers. And I remember my first pastor, and he was talking, you know, he was, he was younger than I am now. He seemed so old back then, you know, here I am like 20 years old. And, and I'm beginning to feel this call to ministry. I'm maybe, maybe 21, 22, not even that. And he, sa and he said, you know what? I, I would encourage you to go out and, and start a church because then they're your children. And I thought, these are people, how are they your children? But now I understand as a father and as a grandfather. You have that kind of, of, of just attachment where, man, I don't want to see anybody in this room. I don't want to see anybody that I lead lost. Man, I just, you know, on, on, on the day that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I want to step back 
And I just want to take it in as you receive your reward. As you fall into the arms of Jesus. Every time somebody I lead hears, well done, good and faith. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, just jumping up and down. The last thing that I would ever want is to see somebody I led walk away from Jesus Christ. It's painful. Paul says, who is not led astray and I do not burn inwardly. As, as, as a Christian leader, if you feel any com compunction to go into ministry, I warn you, you will feel that. It'll hurt when you see people get dis distancing themselves from the word. And so what I've been trying to do in this, before we get into studying the Bible on Wednesdays, is helping people understand that this is a book not only can be trusted, but it can be trusted to be the authority over your life. Okay, so real quick, we're going to end with this. Eusebius of Caesarea in the 3rd century recognized 22 of the 27 New Testament books. Amphicopolis, Gregory, Nazanias, Didymus, Chrysostom, and other important leaders from the 300s all held to the same 22 of the 27 core books as being canonical. The fact that the canon was not closed into the East, closed in the East until the 6th or 7th century, points to the fact that there was no pressure to accept certain books as being canonical. Now, why is that important? Because even if you remove the five books that were disputed, and by the way, they were disputed for things like they weren't sure about the authorship, or they didn't seem to be universal, to apply to everybody. They seemed like second and third John that seemed to be for a, a small church or for a church at a very small period of time. If you remove those five books that were in dispute, you have a Bible that is only 11 chapters shorter, and none of which were a primary witness to the historicity of Jesus Christ. So think about that. Very, very early, they agreed all across Rome, all across Africa, Egypt, the, as far east as they were, the church, without people pressuring them, without people telling them you need to accept this book, they all happened to land on the same books. I wonder how that was accomplished. How did the church know that this book was the word of God? How did they know? Because they didn't know the writer of Hebrews it was. How did they know that this was inspired text? How did they know that James was inspired text? How did they know that 2 Corinthians was inspired text? It was the witness of the Holy Spirit. It was that important to God. It was that important to... And here's the significant point we're going to pray. Nobody was arguing to add a book to the Bible. So when you hear these banned from the Bible, they were arguing about should we include these five. But nobody was arguing. Let's add these other books in. And that's amazing to me because that's, these modern stories are, well, this book, the book of Thomas, right? Or, or this other book here, this, this was banned from the Bible. The early church looked at it and said, this isn't scripture. This isn't divinely inspired. And so the only argument all across the Mediterranean, all across Africa, was what about these books here? 11 chapters of them. <laughs> That's it. There's 11 chapters where we may not be sure about the author or we may not be sure it applies to everybody. It's, it's to a church at a particular time, one chapter here in 3 John or something like that. That was the argument. All of the rest of the New Testament... They were absolutely convinced this is from the Holy Spirit. Let's have a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you so much, God, that you, you are so passionate for your people. Throughout history, throughout every church age, you have delivered unto us your word so that we can know Jesus Christ, so that we can have his word as the authority over our lives. And I pray, Father God, that, Lord, even though we can't change the world that we're in, we can't change the culture, we can't change the spirit of the age, Lord, in the Bridge Church, let us be a church that humbly submits to the authority of your word. You've given it to us, not as just an extra benefit, Lord. It's an absolute necessity, Lord. Father, we need your word. We need your body. We need your spirit. Father God, if we're going to navigate this age, we're going to navigate the attacks of the enemy. We're going to navigate all the trials that are going to come upon the earth. Father God, we need your word and we need your spirit and we need your body. And so we humble ourselves, Lord, to receiving every gift you've given us. And we ask, Father God, that they would be applied and used for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.